like you said, you're kind of the average of the people you hang around with. If the people you hang around with are going to the gym or interested in the values that you want to promote, like eating well, then it gives you so much more opportunity. Hey everyone, my name is Jack Kavanagh and you are very welcome to the Only Human Podcast. Today I am joined by Joe O'Brien, the man behind the Head First Instagram page, which has been so influential over the past year and a half in the area of health psychology. I know Joe since we were kids. We went to primary school together and although our paths went separate directions when we went to secondary school, it's remarkable just how similar our areas of interest have remained. And we've actually ended up working in similar fields, him as a psychologist and me as a coach. Joe is a health psychologist who is currently pursuing his doctoral studies and he also works with Spectrum Mental Health. And so I think you'll agree with me that Now, his insights, perspectives, and evidence-based approach is more relevant and useful for all of us during this time of challenge. I know today's conversation will be hugely valuable for so many people, and if you enjoy, please do share it with a friend, put it up on your stories, and give both of us a tag, and let's get the word out there. I also want to say thank you so much for all the incredible feedback that we've been getting, both about the interviews and solo casts. The feedback that you give us is so invaluable because it helps us understand what is working well and what you'd like to see more of, our areas for improvement, and essentially it helps me develop faster as a host and to understand more of what is engaging for you as an audience and how we can add as much value as possible in each episode. So please continue to reach out, let us know your thoughts and insights, and please keep sharing it. You can catch me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. My handle is Jack Kavanagh, I-R-L, or feel free to shoot me an email as well, hello at jack-kavanagh.com. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation. With Joe O'Brien. Joe O'Brien, you are very welcome to the Only Human podcast. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm good, thank you, Jack. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to uh, to be on and uh, to be able to chat about what I see as some really, really interesting topics. Excellent. Yeah, I think there's going to be huge value now during the period we're going through in this quarantine life, but. But outside of that, you know, so much of what you're about in terms of health psychology um, is valuable to us through all stages of our lives. And um, it only becomes more relevant now, in my own humble opinion. So the thing people might not know, though, is we go back a little bit, um, maybe before this podcast, uh, (laughs) to probably what was it four or five when we started in primary school Gale School Nariha back in the good old days (laughs) yeah the good old days is right um what are your what are your memories actually of that time 
I'd be really interested from like a very honest, objective outsider's uh, viewpoint of of me at that time. And I, I'd be happy to <laughs> if you if you wanted, I'd be happy to give you uh, uh, my my interpretations of of uh, of things as well. Yeah, go for it, go for it. Um, I specifically remember a time uh, you probably remember this story too of when we were doing an exam and the questions were being read out loud. And one of the questions was, um, what are counties called in, in the UK? Do you remember that? Um, I, I, I think when the punchline comes, I will remember it, but come on. <laughs> um, so the, the entire class is real quiet and we're all like writing down our own answers to all of the questions. And it gets to one question in the middle of the, of the test and that's the question, what are counties called in the UK? And you, out of nowhere, in this dead silent class, just scream, Shires! And everyone bursts into tears laughing. I, oh, I specifically God. remember that one thing. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, I, I actually don't remember that. I, I have um, <laughs> probably one of the things that uh, was blocked out of my, my memory because <laughs> I likely got abuse after it. <laughs> maybe so um, yeah I remember you just being a lot of energy you were always like uh, you I know we did cross country together at one point mm. um, we had such a small class that I think everyone was pretty close it was impossible not to hang around with everybody yeah I I think so and I I my my interpretation of, of you at, the, at that time was you're always so much taller than everybody. Um, <laughs> you, you grew like really early and um, you grew really early. And because of that, and you're just gifted sports man anyway, but um, you always dominated, like whether it was like soccer or Gaelic or whatever, it was like, give the ball to Joe and he will hoof it up the field. Um, and uh, I just remember that being being really strong uh, memory. And there's sort of like the, the general consensus is that, or the general association of somebody that is very strongly sporty would be this kind of sort of macho, um style of of personality but i think over over the years like any bit of of that sort of stereotype has been dispelled in your case um because maybe yeah, it's your absolutely. area of interest but but um that i i just don't see that in you at all maybe that's been an evolution i don't know what would you think about that yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because I've always felt growing up that although I kind of really strongly identify with the whole like sports person and um, I was always kind of in that clique, I was also in different cliques. So um, when I was like a teenager, for example, I would have been like part of the emo kids as well as like yeah. um, the, the sports people, too. So I think um, although I like strongly identified with that stereotype in one sense, I think there was maybe more uh, strings to my bow that uh, people maybe might not see if they only saw me in the sporting context or might not see me if they only saw me in like the music context or the psychology context. So um, I guess, yeah, there's, there's maybe more than, more than this scene on, on surface level. Yeah. 
Yeah, I always think it's really interesting that people know you in one context. For example, someone would know you in a work context and they see that element of your life. And unless it's a really open and engaged work environment um, where people feel willing to bring their themselves fully to work, you might not ever learn about like the absolute breadth of those colleagues' lives. And um, I know for myself, like that's been true before that people can sort of box you as like, oh, there's Joe, the sporty guy, um, and not recognize that uh, you're like an avid Blink fan and all the other um, yeah. uh, music that you're, you're like really into and um, that you're like really <laughs> great, great at the piano and, and all these kind of skill sets. Um, I, I think... I've learned over time anyway, just that what you see on, on the surface is a fraction of who that person is. And it's given me cause to be so much more um, empathetic and curious about people, empathetic wit and curious about people, because they're just like this tapestry that has so much, so, so much magic and so many sides, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think when you say, like, uh, when you ask at the start, has, has it been, like, developed or has it changed over the years? I think it's something that comes with kind of uh, personal insight that maybe um, understanding how you see different, how other people see the world and how different people see you is different to maybe how you see yourself. So I think yeah. all those kind of, I think it's, it's kind of becoming more psychologically minded, maybe. Um, and seeing the world in, in different ways. So to some extent, it has been developed. But I think my understanding of how people see me has changed over the years too. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's why I asked you to describe me and I, I describe you. And um, one of my memories of of primary school was actually that I had this sense that I didn't really fit in because everybody was like really into soccer and Gaelic in in our school and I was really into rugby and so all the lads would play on the local soccer and Gaelic teams in Dunchocklin and I was in the parish of Rototes so I would play um, I played a bit of hurling and Gaelic over there but I mostly played rugby and the nearest club at the time was in Navan and so I kind of felt like I wasn't in on the scene to a certain extent yeah, that was that was strange for me. And I remember as well coming back, we have family in Australia and coming back um, from having, it was it's the only time I've been there, but we spent a month out there when I was maybe in fifth class and coming back with, it was the first time that like always during the summers I would be doing water sports camps and I was so passionate about it. But it was the first time that I kind of displayed that in any way and I came back with like this like surfer long hair um, <laughs> and uh, and like uh, what was it uh, a leather necklace that had a surfboard <laughs> on and I just remember like just feeling so different um, yeah. but I wasn't going to hide that I actually remember that change you know um, you had like uh, wristbands and stuff on after that um, and I remember I actually remember that specifically um, yeah. because I think we ended up doing like water sports maybe the next year in Kerry. We met up in Kerry and we ended oh, up doing yeah. water sports together. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so maybe just for our listeners, like where has 
Where has uh, life taken you from the humble beginnings of Girls School Maria? Yeah, well, um, I, I remember you being at rugby and thinking at the time that rugby was uh, awful and I never wanted to play it, but ended up being a huge rugby advocate, ended up playing it for years um, in secondary school. Um, and I guess that's where my interest in, in psychology came. Um, I guess most people who maybe might tune in from my own channel would be interested in how I got into it. And the reason I kind of got into it was that I was, although I was good at school, I still found it really difficult. Um, a little bit like yourself, I kind of like, not felt like I didn't belong, but I felt like I fitted into lots of different groups, but none of them really, um, all of them were doing different things and I wasn't specifically part of one group. Um, so I was like, I would misbehave maybe in school. I wasn't the best teenager, but I was good at school. Um, and it's interesting because at that stage, I remember like reaching out to like a trusted adult in school and them kind of being like, essentially the message that I got was if you weren't kind of such a brat, if you weren't kind of misbehaving, well, then maybe you wouldn't be having such a hard time. And I remember thinking at the time that like, I felt really lost. And I remember literally thinking at whatever I was, 15, maybe 16, that nobody should ever really feel lost, especially when they go to kind of someone that's mm. supposed to support them. And um, literally from, from that forward, like trying to understand what was going on for myself and stuff like that, um, I had this massive interest in psychology. I also had this kind of sports psychology side of it. So um, I used to play rugby at, at a decent level. And um, whenever we played big games, I would literally get sick before any big matches. So I couldn't eat because I knew if I would eat that I'd get sick. And it was so interesting that the psychological side of the game had impacted like my performances so badly at that age. And that was the other aspect of psychology I thought was really cool. So I went into psychology thinking like, well, maybe I'm going to be a therapist, but maybe I'm going to be a sports psychologist. And um, I guess that's kind of the, the main motivators for me that kind of got me into it. And that changed significantly as I went through college. But yeah, that's essentially how I, how I got into the field. Really. Yeah, I, I can really associate with that sort of sense of teenage years and you're you fit into a number of different groups and you're you're sort of trying to understand your identity and at a certain point like during your teenage years that very much gets tied to the roles you play um and people maybe do that a lot um in years years like their later years like so the roles you play maybe was an athlete and a musician and maybe a big part of your identity was this like rebellious young guy in school and um that might have formed like a, a big part of your identity and then as time goes on you start to wear different hats like it's joe the psychologist and and maybe there's like a bigger breath that you see yourself in like that um, sort of tapestry that we mentioned earlier and you see yourself as being uh, having much more nuance and breadth to your identity and you're maybe not just attached completely to one as much. But I think one of the things that's happening now um, during this time that we're going through when a lot of people have experienced a lot of suffering, so the trauma of either getting sick or losing loved ones, of losing jobs, of having their roles completely shifted, of of losing income or businesses, all these kind of things. And our 
identities are being challenged in such a big way. For example, for somebody that had a very strong identity as I am an entrepreneur and that business is no longer viable, they are probably now going to be venturing into that space that you mentioned as a teenager where you felt that sense of being lost. And um, and I definitely had that in my mid-20s, actually, um, that sense of being... Uh, being lost like and trying to figure it all out and it's it's a hard place to be what would you yeah, say what i was going to say just in relation to that is, is i had a, a similar scenario when i left school like you said your kind of identity is tied to that those roles you're playing and my role was always like sports person and playing rugby and like was like i was important because that was the value that i added to like school and to my friend group and stuff and then when i left school it was like starting over. It was like I didn't have that identity anymore. And I know a lot of people maybe are probably feeling in the same boat right now and that the kind of purpose and meaning from their life was often like the people that they meet every day, the work that they do, that feeling that you're contributing something to society. And it's such a fundamental part of being a human is contributing to the people around you, contributing to your community, contributing something to the world that is kind of in line with your values. I know mm. maybe people will have will have lost that because of, of what's happened recently. That's pretty distressing. It's pretty pretty difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I I recorded a solo podcast um, earlier this week, and part of it I mentioned. I was asking the question of people, "What would you be proud of in a year's time in terms of how you conduct yourself, in terms of the behaviors that you adopt or don't adopt?" choices you make or don't make how you show up with people around you know all those kind of things and the second question I asked so that was sort of creating a long-term perspective and giving you a reference point but then I went and brought it to the short term and I was like well what do you need right now and because we do have those fundamental needs and I know in the, the sort of personal development space they would say that there's sort of six fundamental human needs the first one is uncertainty, which we are experiencing so much of now. And really, that's all about novelty in our lives and having sort of variety. The second one is for certainty, which is um, we need to know that there are things that we can rely on in our lives. So whether that is the certainty you get from your job or um, the certainty you get from having a house over your head or the certainty you get from the people and the relationships in your life, they're all elements of certainty or that the government will pick you up if if you get ill sort of a thing. And they all gives us, gives us an element of, of certainty and control. The next two are love and connection. That's tied together as one, which again, that's been challenged so much now while we're, our need for physical connection is being challenged and um but that doesn't mean that we can't be emotionally connected and we'll get onto that maybe a little bit later the fourth area is for significance and significance comes from being competent competent in an area of our lives to a point where we can add value to others and then that leads into the next the final two which are growth and contribution and that's that piece that you've mentioned there the growth and contribution and we 
we grow through contribution and vice versa. And for so many people, that's been challenged now. And they're directly related to that sense of meaning, meaning and purpose in our lives that without we can just really wander and feel empty if that's not there. So I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on some of that. Yeah, I think oh, right now it's so difficult, right? Because like you said, we have this this need that, that our, our, we, we always seek this kind of certainty and safety. Um, and we're, as human beings, we're always looking to feel safe. And when things are uncertain, when things are kind of in turmoil the way they are at the moment, where there's no definite answers, it can just be incredibly distressing. And I think part of what everybody's looking for is that certainty piece. And though, although we do need the kind of diversity in our days, which we're not getting because we're most of us are stuck at home, essentially, um, we're still you know, finding it difficult to kind of manage in this turmoil state where everything is uprooted and we don't have that certainty um i think that's where there are things that we can do day to day to kind of maybe manage a little bit better in terms of um managing the uncertainty now i think i I posted about this recently is that one of the things in relation to exposure to the news is that the more we kind of fill our surround ourselves or fill ourselves with this kind of these traumatic news stories and distressing news stories, the more it can kind of amplify that uncertainty and the kind of maybe internal difficulties that we're, that we're experiencing. Um, but even before we kind of go into the, the depths of, of how to manage this specific uncertainty or how to manage this short period, is that there's so much we can do in terms of the basics. The basics are so, so important when it comes to like managing our mental health. And I think people really forget that. I think the, the one that maybe gets forgotten the most is social connection. Um, now, the other ones I was, I was going to mention are, are things like our sleep, our exercise, our nutrition. They're obviously like really, really important. And maybe people don't see how important they are. But people definitely don't see how important social connection is because it does things for us like it, it helps, for example, for emotional or stress regulation um, and being alone is stressful in long periods. So I think if you look at the way maybe things were before um, the pandemic hit, um, we would always look, let's say we were planning our week, you'd always plan, for example, how much exercise you're going to do or how often you're going to go gym or you're going to maybe plan your meals if you're trying to eat better or maybe if you're tired, you're going to plan to sleep more. But it's very rare that we try and pencil in social connection as much as we need we might say, I'm meeting my friends on Saturday, and then that's it. Whereas we don't really see how important that social connection is. So um, I think that's one of the things that maybe we're obviously lacking right now. But I guess the next best thing that we're doing for ourselves right now is is doing things like, you know, video calling our friends or, or catching up with people maybe we haven't spoke to in a while and then using social media for, I guess, what it, what it should be used for is that trying to, to connect as best as we can. Mm, to build that sense of community i've definitely had the sense myself anyway that as our individual worlds are getting smaller to a certain degree um, with the restrictions that we're under that there's a sense of being a part of or connected to the bigger sort of humanity if that makes sense because like globally this is something that we're all facing together and it kind of brings home for the first time for me anyway, that we're all connected in some way. We're all one to a certain degree. 
And um, there's a lot of lessons to be taken out at this time, but that's that's definitely one of them for me. And I I wanted to really pick your brains on this because this is the area that you work within. It's it's health psychology, and during this time. Uh, we are going to be challenged on a number of fa- uh, factors and different parts of our lives. But what are the sort of fundamental factors of maintaining healthy mental health, I would say, or managing some of that anxiety or overwhelm just so we can buffer against it? Okay, so I cannot stress the importance of the basics enough. Some people get very deep into like, what will this specific supplement add to my brain health? What will you know this new habit change? The basics often contribute, you know, more than than this one individual thing. It's kind of looking at things from the bigger picture. Um, so, for example, if you if you look at, for example, the growth in, in mental health issues in recent times, it's not just explained through genetics. You know, they're increasing for a reason, and. I guess my own opinion is that because our lifestyles are changing so drastically, um, we're moving away from the lifestyle factors that are important for our mental health. So there are ways essentially that we're living that are negatively impact our mental health. And some of them, some of them are probably so embedded in our society, they're so normal that people kind of write them off. So I guess the basic things that I want to say first are the sleep, nutrition, exercise, and then social connection. Because if you even go to sleep, for example, as a start, it impacts not only physical health, but mental health as well. It's associated with essentially, um, like there's, there's no mental health issue that's not either correlated with sleep as a predictor or as kind of a knock-on effect or a symptom of that mental health issue. So sleep is an absolute fundamental. Um, exercise as well builds mental resilience. It's not just for your physical health. There's some really interesting research on how well people recover from mental stress. So they measured the stress response in the brain. And what they found was that people who exercise regularly and at higher intensities, it's kind of like a dose-dependent response, um, is that if you're exercising regularly, your mental recovery is quicker than those who don't exercise at all. So exercise can actually build mental resilience as well as just being good for your physical health. And then nutrition, another one that kind of people miss. Maybe people get the idea that when I eat well, I feel good. Um, but maybe forget maybe how that might work. So if you think about how your brain is, or if you think about how your body is structured, first of all, if you eat well, you're likely to have good physical health. So, you know, if you don't eat, you know, too much takeaways and you have a varied diet, you get your whole grains, fruit and vegetables, for example, your heart will work well. It's the same with your brain. So if you eat well, your brain will function well because your brain needs nutrients to form, to work every single day. And then when we start depriving our body and our brain of nutrients, it doesn't work so well. So if you think about, um, for example, bone health might be a good one. If you have poor bone health because your nutrition is just awful, let's say, um, you might get a couple of stress fractures and you might get like physical aches and pains. Um, the thing is, is that if your nutrition is bad and it's impacting your brain, the brain's role is things like emotions and cognition and thinking. And those are the things that are going to be affected if you're not fueling it in the right way. So nutrition also has a, has a big impact on mental health. There's more and more research coming out about nutrition and how it impacts mental health. And then, of course, the, the social connection. Um, something that we kind of forgot, for, forget about, but maybe are more aware of now because we don't have it. Um, 
I would say social connection should be something that we pencil in every single week. So they would be kind of the basics of managing your mental health. If you have those four things really well in check, um, you're, you're going a, a good way to kind of... Um, to kind of benefit your mental well-being. We know from like the people who turn up in, in therapy and, and turn up like asking, for example, me questions through Instagram and things like that, um, they will generally be maybe compromised in, in one, if not more, of, of those areas. So there's often one of those kind of fundamental things missing when, when people are struggling with their mental health. Yeah, and I think, as you said, I would be very much of the same school that everything is built off the basics. And if those building blocks aren't in place, it's understandable that that the walls begin to shake, you know. Um, and that it, it's a simple analogy to think about, but the foundations of, of your health are just those things that you talked about. And for me, I know that um, if I'm not sleeping well, um, my emotional regulation is severely compromised. It, my decision making is severely compromised and I know there's studies that correlate the amount of sleep deprivation that you have to for example um comparing it to uh drink driving and um being hung over and all those kind of different things and and it's market effects that being sleep deprived has um, and there's an amazing book actually called why we sleep for anybody that's interested more in in the ways in which sleep regulates so much more um, than you might think. Um, and the exercise piece, I do as much for my mind as anything. I know that if I'm not regularly exercising, this sort of tension builds up and, and that's like a physical and a mental tension. So 100%. Yeah. The, the piece I, I, I know you've got an interest in, in nutrition um, as part of what you do and, would you have maybe any insights in terms of like the gut brain axis and how how that works because people talk about the gut as the second brain yeah i'd love to hear a little bit about that yeah so there definitely is a link um the link is bidirectional because they know that because the way you think and and maybe your stress levels your emotions can impact your gut health Similarly, if you eat poorly, it can impact your, your mental health. So they know that that's bidirectional. It's not just that one affects the other. It's that they both affect each other. Um, the research on it is quite new. So what we know about it is quite limited. For people who are out there kind of promoting, this is how the gut works. Definitely, this is like the optimal gut health. We don't really know what that looks like right now. So that is kind of not nonsense, but, you know, um, it's hard to define exactly what the perfect gut health looks like. So for people promoting like optimal gut health, what we know at the moment is that um, diversity in your fruit and vegetable intake is the kind of, is kind of the, the gold standard at the moment. It's, it's what we know works best in terms of your gut diversity. And that works through a nerve called the vagus nerve. Um, mm. So basically it will send different messages. You often might see the stats that I think is 95% of your serotonin is produced in your gut. Um, they're still not sure how well, I guess, that that impacts your actual mood and your behaviors. Um, but they know that serotonin is, is produced um, pre- predominantly in the gut. So um, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of like a really new wave of, of research and a new kind of 
pathway that they're investigating. It's I guess the, the field is called nutritional psychiatry. Um, and it's how uh, there's a really um, interesting book by Felice Jacka called Brain Changer for anyone who has an interest in, in that kind of field. And it's all about how nutrition can impact your brain health. It's a really, really fascinating read. Again, if, if someone's read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, um, and been kind of blown away by that, this is the kind of equivalent for nutrition and brain health. Um, Felice Jack is an incredible researcher in this field and has been for many years. So really, really trusted source and incredible insight. Basically, what they know is that nutrition definitely impacts the brain in multiple ways. Um, can be in terms of testing it for a treatment. Um, they haven't got proof that food alone is a treatment for mental health issues or, or that kind of thing. But they there are kind of the basics that it is a good adjunctive treatment, meaning that it, it could, for example, accelerate how quickly you recover from something or it could contribute towards your recovery. Um, mm. I kind of don't really like the idea that, that food can be seen as, as a medicine yet um, because there isn't the evidence for that yet. Um, but certainly is is a real positive in terms of uh, how it relates to your to your brain health. Like it's correlated, let's say, with things like depression, anxiety, um, ADHD, things like that. So there's definitely a, a correlation there somewhere. Yeah, and I, I suppose like with with all of these foundational elements of um, our mental health, they they are bidirectional in that like if we're sleeping well, for example we're more likely to feel like doing the positive habits, like going for the walk or going to get exercise. And we're more likely to make good food choices. And if we're making good food choices, our body will feel better and that'll knock back into, we're more likely to exercise. And, you know, if we're exercising, we have a better self-image and um, we are um, getting some of the the positive um uh, hormones uh, expressed and all, it, they're all innately linked and so um, absolutely really, absolutely i think this, the sleep point is really interesting that you brought up sorry i don't mean to cut across you but not at all well just just to kind of explain the sleep thing for people because i'm sure lots of people will identify with you know when i'm sleep deprived i always go for the kind of bad food if you will or i go for the easy option or I go to kind of revert to my you know old habits that might be maybe habits that you don't really want anymore and that's because when you're sleep deprived you um your brain's frontal lobes your prefrontal cortex is deprived it, it doesn't work as well essentially and what that is is kind of it's partly self-regulation it's partly planning and it's partly like um doing the kind of higher executive functions so if we don't have those or if we're kind of working off a place where they're not quite at 100%, of course, we're more likely to go with our maybe gut instinct or our old habits because they're the easier option. So yes, sleep's fundamentally linked with everything, but then everything is linked with one another because if you eat well and you and you exercise well and you know you live in a healthy kind of lifestyle, your sleep will improve. So all of these things are inherently linked and, and bi-directional in nature. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, um, no, it's fascinating stuff. And um so like around that, I, I know so many of our daily practices and routines and ways of operating in the world have been shifted so quickly that people were kind of reeling. But there is opportunity within that now because as people start to work from home more, as their um, physical um, freedoms become a little bit more restricted, there is also an opportunity here to start to build some some proactive and constructive um 
lifestyle habits and so I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about say the importance of environment in terms of building our healthy lifestyle modifications but also the importance of um, finding a community to support within that because um, look we talked about human connection as being a big thing and they say simply put again like you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with and if you are associating in your physical environment or even on an online environment with people that say I don't know if your goal is to eat more healthily and those people are pursuing that or staying consistent with those kind of things the likelihood of you following suit is higher so Maybe could you talk a little bit about that, the importance of environment and community for um, healthy lifestyle adoption or, or consistency in those areas? Yeah, look, it makes a massive, massive difference to have somebody who's going to support you in your goals. I think, like you said, you're kind of the average of the people you hang around with. If the people you hang around with are going to the gym or interested in the values that you want to promote, like eating well, then it gives you so much more opportunity. For example, if your group of friends loves cooking and loves cooking really nutritious meals, it's going to be a lot easier for you to say, you know, oh, I'll join in when we all go to that person's house. And okay, maybe not right now, but um, let's all get together and cook this meal. Whereas if all of your friends want to go to McDonald's every evening for their evening meal, it's more difficult for you to cook your own stuff and also socialize with that group if if they're very different things. So I think we are kind of subjects of our environment. Um, and that's not just like the social environment, it's also the physical environment. Um, there's a huge amount of research around how... Um, obesity levels and uh, healthy eating patterns are very different in different areas and how those areas might be more strongly um, weighted with fast food restaurants, for example, and there might be a lack of availability of healthier options or perceived healthier options. Um, I think the term is food desert when yeah. there's a lack of nutritionally available or nutrition, good quality nutritional foods available. So, um it dictates a huge, like we are subjects of our environment in that if things aren't available around us, we won't do them. Um, if, for example, healthy food was only available around us, we would have to eat it because we'd have to survive. And I think we're actually seeing an example of that with the coronavirus situation because it was a case that lots of businesses closed initially, um, but pubs and restaurants stayed open. And pubs and restaurants were filled with people so it's a case of you know we are we're creatures of habit we do the things that we know how to do we know the things that we're kind of safe doing so as long as the pubs and restaurants were open people were going to them and then once there was an enforced change in our environment we changed our behavior which was we can't attend the pubs anymore because they're simply not open and i feel like that with with healthy lifestyle stuff too is that if we surround ourselves with um, the right things, the right people, of course, we're going to be more likely to ad adopt to those to those changes because we are subjects of our environment. And I think it's one of the huge areas that's kind of missing in public health interventions. If you've seen for the last kind of 20 or 30 years, 
for all our public health, and this is kind of the area that I'm most passionate about, but the nutritional interventions that uh, we've delivered through public health have always been information. Let's tell people that this food is healthy and this food is, is not so healthy. Um, and then let's let them make their own changes. But unless we shift the environment around that and people's psychology related to that, then that's not going to be an effective enough information because we're subjects of our environment. The environment has a huge impact. Again, physical and social environments have a huge impact on how we behave. Yeah, I'm on the exact same page with all of that. And even in terms of just setting up your own physical environment at home, these kind of things are really applicable because... For example, in the mornings, I have a routine of of when I get up, one of the first things I see is kettlebells um, in my room on the floor. And I do that on purpose because it spurs me into doing exercise. And when I do exercise, I'm more likely then to go and do a meditation. And when I have done those kind of habits, they start to stack and I'm more likely to um, have healthy healthy meals through the day. And all these kind of things add up. And, and that's simply, it's called a keystone habit um, in terms of habit, habit formation. Uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear is a, a, just a, a brilliant book. Um, but if you can have like a keystone habit, say in your own physical environment at home, that will trigger lots of other good habits in the way that, say, I just mentioned, seeing the kettlebells in the morning triggers loads of other good decisions and and habits through the day the day and so those kind of things are things that you can implement and also in terms of the environment simply uh, a very simple thing to do is if you're trying to minimize the amount of junk food for example that you're eating and to make healthier food options just don't buy the junk food leave it out of the house and when there's that extra psychological barrier to entry, you're less likely just to get up and go out and have to walk to the shop or drive to the shop to buy a bar of chocolate. You're more likely to pick up the piece of fruit or to make some better choices, you know, if if your environment doesn't doesn't have Yeah, I, th- I think I think in rela- I think I think in relation to that, it's like um if you make the the good choice, if you make the positive choice, the easy choice, then that's essentially the the long term goal, right? If it was the case that, um, for example, the nearest fast food place was twenty miles away from you, and you wanted fast food now, how far would you travel? And the the harder it is to do the the thing that you don't want to do, so if if it's harder to, for example, get the fast food, and it's easier to actually get the really good nutritious food people will likely take the easier option. There's very few people that will go to great lengths um, to kind of move away from those healthier habits. But when it's the kind of ease of, of um, use, of ease of access even, when it's all around us, um, like it is, right? We're surrounded by fast food restaurants and we're surrounded by, um, I guess, unhealthy for want of a better word. I think anything can be healthy in the right context, but... Um, the kind of what's traditionally seen as the unhealthy foods and, and that kind of thing, we're surrounded by them. So of course it's easier to make those decisions. If that's like 90% of the foods that's stocked in a supermarket and only 10% is the kind of fresh food and, and highly nutritious food, then of course it's going to be easier to kind of engage in those easier options. And when the easy option is the kind of unhealthy option, then we're kind of setting ourselves up for failure, I think. 
Yeah. Um, another way I think about it is is lowering the bar for success on on those good outcomes you want to have. Um, it's all about making that good choice the easier choice, just like you said. So yeah. I know like everybody has had so many changes in their lives and one of those changes might be that they're spending uh, a lot more time living in close quarters with maybe family, maybe housemates, friends. Um, I know some people will be living alone, which comes with its own challenges. But for those that are living in close quarters during this time of look heightened stress and uncertainty in a lot of ways for different people, I wonder, would you have any insight or thoughts around the importance of clear, compassionate, respectful, empathetic communication during these times, but also balancing that with our own boundaries and and how we need to be respected and and communicated with, you know, and creating sort of safe spaces to to voice um, uh, irritations and you know all those kind of things that that happen when people are living in close quarters. Yeah, absolutely. It's a time when I know a really kind of sad aspect of, of this whole lockdown is that there's higher levels of domestic abuse. And that mm. shows the difficulty of people living in close quarters and, and I guess the kind of far end of the spectrum in terms of difficulties. But I know like everybody is going to have trouble probably at some point over the next couple of weeks, months, however long it goes on, um, in terms of living with people. It's it's difficult to spend a lot of time with a, a restricted amount of people. So I think what you said there about boundaries are so, so important. And it's not just setting your own boundaries, but appreciating other people's boundaries too. I think for for people's boundaries themselves, um, one of the things that I've noticed personally, and I think maybe other people might identify with this, is that I personally have made the decision to kind of only check the news once a day, uh, probably at max. Some days I don't even check the news because for me, the advice is going to be the same. It's that stay at home, distance yourself from people, wash your hands, um, and you know it's not going to change. It's not going to distance itself too much from that. Um, but for me, one of the big boundaries that I've had to kind of put my foot down on is I don't want to be exposed to all the news. I don't want to be exposed to all the latest, you know, death statistics and like cases and being told that it's getting worse around the globe and, and all these kind of bad news headlines, because to me, they, they impact me. They make me a little bit more worried. And I think other people maybe have exposed themselves to the media too and realized, you know, this probably isn't good for me. I, I might need to reduce that. But where the boundaries are important is, is in relation to other people. So I know that my family would be um, quite, um, let's say, good at um, keeping up to date well the numbers and all the cases and, and and you know the latest news and all of the different countries. One of the boundaries they, I've they, had to put they in place. have a strong proficiency in that area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're good researchers. Let me let me say that's that must be where I got it from. Um, <laughs> research stuff. Um, but. Uh, they would they would kind of um, project an awful lot of that back, even though that was something that I didn't really want to know. And what I one of my suggestions was was that um, we have like coronavirus free time. So there's a time where we'll just say, okay, what what's going on outside of what's you know coronavirus? What's going on outside of the pandemic? And um, can we have like a structured time where we don't need to talk or think about it anymore? 
Um, and that's been really helpful. Um, it's it's brought, uh, it's it's tested my need for like, or it's tested my my skills of creativity in terms of what do you do to fill the time then. But also, um, it's been really important for me personally in terms of my mental well-being to put those boundaries in place. And I think boundaries and looking after yourself, it's okay to put yourself first sometimes. It's okay to say, I know you guys want to talk about this or do this thing. But for my own self um, and my own mental well-being, I want to do this other thing. And that might be like chilling out in your room by yourself. might be going for a walk by yourself or or reading a book. It could be all these different things. Um, But it's okay to put yourself first. Um, the other thing is is respecting other people's boundaries. So in the same way as you're you're going to want some alone time, maybe you're going to want to check the news sometimes or or watch the latest TV show, or you might have like disagreements over the TV. Remember that other people are trying to do best for themselves too, and sometimes it's about saying, you know what, I disagree, but it's okay. We can disagree and still live in harmony. We can disagree and still be friends. We can disagree and still be close family members. You don't always have to agree with what everybody's saying or what everybody's doing. And I think there's a certain amount of uh, maybe acceptance and flexibility that's important to kind of incorporate there in that this is a really difficult situation. Everyone's doing their best. And if we can all kind of do our best, um, then we'll, we'll do okay. And respecting that other people are trying to do their best too. Maybe it's impacting your mental well-being. Maybe their stress is kind of transferring over to you a little bit. But remember that that's maybe their best way of managing right now. Yeah, I, I really agree with so much of that. And um, so the boundaries being a two-way, a two-way street, um, yours and theirs, um, but also just going into into life in general with the premise that people are doing their best with where where they're at with the hand they've been dealt with all of the variety of of um things that are happening for them it it creates a much more empathetic environment now one of the things that i'm really interested in is Although this is a time of stress and adversity in many ways, there is always a flip side to that. And it's also a time of opportunity for people in different ways as well. And I know from my own experience, it might not have been immediately obvious, but people can after, if we consider this a period of stress or trauma of kinds, um, for a lot of people, there is a phenomenon known as post-traumatic growth. And it fascinates me. Um, I'm very fortunate that following the spinal cord injury that I had when I was 20, that that is the path that that I went on. But what are your insights into into that sort of phenomenon of post-traumatic growth? It's a difficult one. It's a really difficult one because I think it's difficult to speak to um, trauma and growth from trauma because everyone's is different. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to give kind of blanket advice because I think advising people on trauma, depending on what it is, can be really kind of dangerous maybe to address or try and understand themselves. So with trauma specifically, obviously it's dependent on the issue. Maybe for some people it's easy to think about and talk about, but for other people, certain traumas can be incredibly difficult and, and hard to think about, hard to speak about. Um, so 
in terms of advice relating to kind of growing from trauma, I think my best advice genuinely is to flesh it out with a professional if that's if that kind of opportunity is available to you. Um, I think the one thing that I would say to anyone who has experienced a traumatic experience is that there are opportunities to grow from it, um, although it might seem incredibly daunting and incredibly difficult. Um, and it, it's a hard process, like like you said, in your own experience. Like it's it's no it's no easy feat, and, and there's a lot of difficulty that comes with that. And for some people, maybe they're not ready to experience those those difficulties in order to get to the other side. People are at different points, and like I said, different traumas at different times and, and different situations can really kind of restrict people in addressing it. But I guess the idea that there is the opportunity for growth there is is really important because maybe a lot of people might not actually see that. Yeah, and often uh, it's with time that that um, the learnings start to percolate out, and um, that we start to see maybe some of the upsides um, or things that we've we've learned from those. And I wanted to touch briefly on um, an area that that I know has been very close to your own heart, which was when one of your really close friends passed away. And that was incredibly difficult, but led to a period of of real uh, challenge in terms of mental health. And uh, similar to myself, when I had the injury, you know, you grieve for the person that was and the life that was and all of those kind of things. And as you came through that, um, maybe can you talk about that journey a little bit? Yeah, look, it was an incredibly, incredibly tough time. It was losing someone in, in kind of difficult circumstances where there were no kind of definite answers. And um, it was when I was like 21 and they were at the same age. So as you can imagine, losing someone at that age to kind of not unknown circumstances, but kind of you don't get any answers from the the, the way that it happened um, created its own difficulty. And I think... I would say that that kind of year, the 12 months after that, was the most difficult year of my life. Um, and I, I think I was fortunate in, in some respects that I knew um, I was in the middle of my psychology degree. I was just after coming home from a summer abroad um, and going into my, my, I think it was my final year, maybe my third year of, of college. So I was lucky enough to be in a position that I was able to recognize in myself maybe some of the things that were happening for me. And I don't think other people maybe have that opportunity, which is which is quite sad and scary um, because it was an incredibly difficult time for me. But I was maybe well-versed enough to know that, you know, this is something that I should probably get support with. This is something that I should reach out to somebody and talk about. Because, like I said, with, with trauma and, and maybe grief and bereavement as well, um, it's it's important to address these things and not kind of push them under the rug and kind of leave them under the surface for a long time. Um, and for different people, it's different amounts of time. For me, it was kind of like the six month period when I kind of, it was kind of after a six month period that I realised I still don't feel okay with this and, and start to maybe talk more about it. Um, but again, like I said, people often don't have that opportunity. They don't see that there's a way to kind of manage better outside of their own experience. I think that's a really important message to deliver to people and that 
you can be at like you can be in a really bad place. You can be um, really really struggling, and even if you don't have the knowledge to even just reach out to somebody and express how you're feeling, it's such a huge step to take. Mm, um, massive. Because like I said, yeah, like I said, it was, it was a really tough time. And I actually didn't do that for quite a while. It took me, even with, you know, three years of a psychology degree behind me, to realize something's not quite right here. Maybe I should speak about this more. So, yeah, I know. incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, and thanks for sharing that with us, Joe. And I think with that comes, you know, any kind of loss or perceived loss in our lives. And, Look, at the moment, people have lost freedom. They've lost jobs. They've lost a sense of identity. You know, there's there's loss of all kinds. Um, there's also things that are being gained, um, new perspective. Maybe people are reconnecting with things that are, were on the long finger that are important to them. They're understanding what they really value in life and all of these kind of things. But people are uh, struggling and that is entirely valid if that's the case and it's so important for people to understand maybe where they can turn and there's three disciplines that get talked about a lot I know there's counseling and there's coaching and there's a variety of different disciplines but the three that I was going to ask you to maybe distinguish between was the fields of uh, psychology psychotherapy and psychiatry and what are the differences, what are the relative strengths of each, and when might somebody go to one or the other? What's their scope of practice? Okay, so this one is a question I used to get asked a lot because it's so confusing, and still to this day, it's quite confusing, even for people in the field. So all of those, so a psychologist, a psychotherapist, and a psychiatrist all work in the field of psychology. Psychology is the study of the mind and behavior, so all of those um, practitioners work in the field of psychology. Um, a psychologist is somebody who um, can deliver... Okay, so this is where it gets complicated. A psychologist can deliver therapy, psychotherapy, um, but a psychologist generally has more training than a psychotherapist. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but essentially, if you become a psychologist, you've probably got to doctorate level in terms of your training, which is probably about seven, eight, nine years potentially for, for some people. Whereas a psychotherapist um, might not have a psychology degree per se, but might do a therapy degree, and that qualifies them to be a psychotherapist. Um, and that's not uh, a cut at them. They're incredibly able to do um, their roles, but psychologists will have different skills um, in terms of things like um, maybe assessments. Um, they'll have they'll be able to work in different fields. They're generally trained in multiple types of psychotherapy. So you might have heard like things like CBT or, or ACT. You might have heard like psychodynamic therapy. There's hundreds of styles of therapy. Um, a psychologist will generally have at least a minimum knowledge of three, sometimes four. Um, Whereas a psychotherapist is generally trained in one. Um, it, and that would be like you might do a psychotherapy degree in CBT. Whereas a psychologist, because of their experience and their level of training, will have multiple modalities that they can reach to to kind of use with any one client and be able to pick and choose what might be best. So um, a psychologist delivers therapy in the same way as a psychotherapist would, but just a different level of experience and training. Um, and then a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who can only kind of administer medication for the issue. So they're a medically trained doctor. They specialize in mental health, 
And what they do specifically is they would administer medication. They wouldn't, or they're generally not trained in psychotherapy, so they wouldn't do therapy with you. But I know some psych- or psychiatrists who have gone on to do further training and would be able to deliver that. But generally, they're not able to. Does that make sense? That's really kind of complicated, but I, I hope I've explained it the right way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, for me, the way that I t- tend to think about it a little bit is, um, I suppose psychologists are maybe their early grounding and um, their early grounding and through their their training, um, there's a lot more emphasis placed on conducting and um, conducting and understanding research techniques and skill sets and whereas maybe the psychotherapy avenue jumps and not that it doesn't absolutely find its basis in uh, evidence and is is directed towards an element of research but it's maybe not as heavily focused on the research as psychologists might have gone through. It's more focused immediately on the therapy and the delivery of that therapy. Um, And I know there's a variety of different fields within psychotherapy, as you mentioned, and there's um, some fields that are more sort of holistic in that they incorporate a number of schools of thought and things like that, particularly more recent uh, psychotherapy d- degrees so um yeah i that's that's the distinction that i would draw anyway and um, i don't know would you add anything to that and um, no that's that's fair i think um more i think if you are if you take different modalities um you might identify as an integrative psychotherapist yes and they generally in- integrate um different forms of, of therapy um and then obviously yeah, they, so some people will only practice in one field. I think you're right in terms of psychologists will have maybe a, a greater understanding of the uh, pathology and like the, the brain, the understanding of the brain, the kind of biology, um, whereas psychotherapy would be trained in kind of therapeutic techniques. That would be my understanding of it, of it too. Um, I only have yeah. experience in doing my own doctorate, um, which is in health psychology. So um, maybe a little bit distant from strict therapy, but um yeah, that would, that would be my understanding of it too. Yeah. So as we come to the end of this um, chat, which has been just brilliant, uh, really insightful, I, I have two last questions for you. The first question is, what has this period of coronavirus thus far taught you about yourself and about humanity? Okay, that's an interesting one. Um, what has it taught me about myself and humanity? I think it's shown me how much I need and how much people need human connection. Um, I honestly think that our lives were a bit skewed before. And I put this mm. on my Instagram this morning um, because previously we used to find it difficult to find an hour to do something that we enjoyed. We would look at our day and we'd, we'd say, oh, I'm too busy to do this or I'm too busy to do that. And those things we put off are generally the things that we need. And now we're in a situation where we have like 16 or 17 hours a day to fill in terms of how long we're awake for. Um, And we're trying to do our best to fit as much stuff in as we can that we need. So I think if there's anything that kind of comes from this, I would love it to be that we listen to our needs more. 
instead of putting them to the back. So instead of saying, well, I have my job, um, I need to travel home, I need to do the gym, I need to do some extra work when I get home, and then I go to sleep. Realizing that we need more than that day to day. And that if it is penciling in some interpersonal human connection, or if it's penciling in your gym or your nutrition or whatever it is, just kind of listening to our needs. Um, so I think coronavirus and this kind of scenario that we've been placed in really taught me that it's important to listen to our needs. And maybe the way we're li- we were living before this doesn't quite meet our needs. Um, I think what it's taught me about society is that it's kind of that idea that we're all in it together. Um, we've really come together, I think, as a society. People are doing other people's shopping. Some people are working for free just to help out their own company or the, their colleagues in their company. People are coming out of retirement in the NHS and the health services. Um, there's landlords that are letting people off their rent. You know, it's, it's this idea that we're all in it together and that when times are tough, we will stick together as a society and we'll come together. Um, yeah, kind of get through it, I guess. It's, it's, it's quite inspiring. Even on the kind of social media front, you see people doing more and more community-based stuff. Like, let's do a group workout. At the end mm. of the evening, let's have a group chat. Let's talk about this topic or let's do this online event. And there's this sense that, yeah, things are hard right now, but we'll get through it because we can pull together. We can do these other things while we get through it. And, and I really, really like the idea that we're all kind of in it together and coming together as a society to do something. Yeah, that's really been my sentiment about the whole thing is is that we're all in it together and there's just such an upsurgence of like people doing things for the collective good. And in doing that, they're they're doing stuff for the the individual good as well. Like they're serving themselves by by doing good for others, you know, which is which is great. Um Absolutely. It's like a basic premise of life is like the more you help others, the more you help yourself. Um, but sometimes you need to flip that and you need to help yourself first so you can help others. But that's a whole Absolutely. other podcast. <laughs> the, last, <laughs> the last question um, for you, and you can be as brief or as long on this as, as you want, is, look, I think both of us have people um, very close to us that have passed away far before they should have my question in this is, look, none of us know um, how long we have, but how would you like people to remember your impact on the world? What would you like people to remember about you? That's incredibly interesting. Um, I don't know, I've never thought about that, but I would say maybe what I would like to contribute and hopefully people remember me for that is that I want, I want to contribute something that benefits more than just myself. Um, I've always wanted to, I guess my dreams are quite big in terms of what I want to add to public health. And maybe that was part of why I set up this kind of Instagram page and, and to do kind of stuff on social media is to reach more people. I remember uh, when I set it up initially, the idea was I have all this knowledge about psychology and mental health and I always complain that people don't know enough about it, but then I'm not doing anything to kind of benefit those people either. I'm not doing anything to spread a message that's positive around mental health and spread some like evidence-based information. So I guess I want my contrib- contribution to be more than just a self-serving, to, to reach more people with helpful knowledge and tips and to be remembered as someone who 
who cared about who cared about others I guess deadly love it um <laughs> so Joe thanks so much for for your time um if people want to learn more about you um what's the what's the best place for them to find out I think um best place you're going to find uh information about me and information about what I do is my Instagram page which is headfirst0 um after that, I work for Spectrum Mental Health. If you have inter- interest in like professional services or any kind of talks that I do um, in terms of health psychology or mental health, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie. Um, but the best place to reach me is Instagram because all my details are there and I answer as many messages as I possibly can. So, Deadly. If anybody has gotten value for this, please share it with a friend. Give me any and all feedback, the good, the bad, the ugly um, as well, because it all helps in me creating podcasts that add more value for everybody. And thank you for your time. We don't take it lightly that you take time out of your day to spend with both of us today. So until next time, stay well, stay curious. Cheers. If something in this podcast has resonated with you, I'd really appreciate if you could give it a share. Tag me in the post or in the story on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you're posting and let us know what resonated. Maybe what was the insight that you got that you're going to apply to your own life. Thanks again for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers.